This podcast is brought to you in association with Stockopedia. Stockopedia is an award-winning stock analysis tool for private investors. Make better investment decisions with institutional quality data. Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. So we'd like to say a very happy Christmas, everyone. Hope you're having a good break. Uh, This is actually being recorded before Christmas, but we're going to be publishing it shortly afterwards. So hope you're having a good break and looking forward to the new year. So this is a particularly interesting podcast for all stock market investors because we're going to be looking at those companies and those positions that you can take in your portfolio, which have the potential to really make your portfolio, you know, maybe a position that you only have two or three of throughout your investing career. They're multi-baggers. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Ed Croft, who is the CEO and co-founder of Stockopedia. Ed, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Ed, you've put out a very detailed report on the multi-bagger, identifying those companies and the characteristics that they have. So we're going to be talking through that. We're going to be looking at some of the companies included uh, in that report. So for anybody listening to this that would like to download the report, do check out the notes to this podcast because there will be a link through to that report uh, and that will add some illustrations and some great charts in there. So so do look at that. So before we, we get into it, Ed, please would you be able to give us, for people that aren't aware, an introduction, first of all, to yourself as well as Stockopedia, please. Yes, of course. Um, so myself, I, I was I began my career as a uh, private client wealth broker in the city at Goldman Sachs, and and after that I, I ran a small fund and and when I left the city after the dot com era, and I became a private investor and really looking around on the on the web I couldn't really find a service that I, that I felt really catered to my needs. And I found a lot of the data was quite poor and, and, and a lot of the content too. And, and that really led to the genesis of Stockopedia.com. And from the start, when we launched the subscription service in 2012, we've really just tried to, you know, have a uh, serve private investors and their needs in, in UK and international stocks. So we, we've really founded it in the UK and uh, we do have a core focus on the UK private investor community. But we've got coverage of most of the major markets around the world also have an Australian partnership uh, that is running down there as well. So, and we really provide a, a range of data services, like really high quality data. And we've got our stock ranking system, which is quite powerful and which ranks all the stocks between zero and 100 are very popular with the subscribers. We also do a lot of commentary on shares and also education. So it's all a big part of the, the service and really data is at the heart of it. So we do these data studies and the multi-bagger report is really one of those. Indeed, looking through that report, Ed, there is quite a detailed reference to the ranks that you have developed within that. So again, do do check that report out. And we're going to be discussing some of those ranks, some of the metrics that you look at, and how they relate and how they've played a part in these companies that we're classing as multi-baggers 
you know, those companies that have really produced great returns for investors. We're going to be looking at the key characteristics, the sectors that they're in. But before we do that, Ed, please would you be able to, to give us a little bit of history behind the term multi-bagger. What, what, it, what is a multi-bagger and, and where does the term come from? Uh, yeah, of course, of course. It's uh, actually one of my favorite books on investing is by Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, that should be on everybody's bookshelf. It's a great read. And at the start of that, he talks about multi-baggers and specifically 10-baggers and how they can have such a great impact on a uh, portfolio. And you can think about investing in a share and terming that as your one bag that you've invested in a share. And obviously, if it multi-bags, it's made multiples of the share price. So a two-bagger, three-bagger, five-bagger, 10-bagger, or the elusive 100-bagger that can really do some extraordinary things for a portfolio, which have been a very rare breed in the UK in the last uh, 10 years. But there have been many in the past. So that's really the essence of it. And uh, that's what we decided to go and look studying for. Thank you. So as part of your research, you've identified a number of stocks that we're going to discuss a little bit later on. But as part of that process, you did have some methodology and a bit of a filter, really, because you didn't look at the whole market. You did narrow it down. So before we start discussing the companies and the metrics around these companies, I think it would be good if you could explain your methodology and how you put that report together, please. Of course. So our we we actually looked at the period between April 2013 and April 2023. It's a full decade of market history. And that really started with the date that we began archiving our financial data on stocks. And we wanted to try and dig into that period and find the best performing stocks in the UK stock market over that period and see what conclusions we could draw and see if there were any lessons for investors. So they companies had to be listed in 2013 and also at the end of the study in 2023. So any interim IPOs were excluded and also delistings. And we also chose to focus on companies that had a market cap of 50 million and above at the start. We also did look at micro caps as well below that level. But the core top 10 were from the 50 million plus market cap range. And, uh, and that was really the kind of the, uh, the, the, the breadth of the study. So that, I hope that answers the question. It does. It does. Thank you very much. So I think one of the questions, one of the, the points that, that jumped out to me when first looking at this report is the time frame. Because, you know, when investing, everybody likes to have returns in a shorter period if possible. But I think to add some context to the, the multi-bagger stock and, and how they get to that status, you know, when you look at the, the typical time frame for actually achieving those returns, you know, if we look at a five times return and a, maybe a 10 times return, is there a, a typical holding period or a typical amount of time that it took for these companies to achieve that? Well, I think one of the great mistakes that we all make as private investors is expecting it all to happen in a 12-month period. And what happens is so many end up reaching for the most speculative kinds of stocks that could have very binary outcomes. And actually, if, if you do that, you, you know, may, may well get a, a winning lottery ticket. But actually, the odds of finding that sort of lottery ticket in a year are very, very rare. And most people end up quite disappointed uh, especially because highly speculative stocks tend to not be profitable and often are, 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 yes, just basically more speculative. So I think that's kind of one of the, the mistakes that people make. Really, what the companies that 
we found with a top multi-baggers had is they really benefited from the power of compounding. So a compounding growth rate through time. And it's really building on, you know, outstanding returns in one year and the next and the next and the next in terms of sales and profits, which really leads to those consistent decade long multi-bagger returns. And so, 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 you know, holding periods often do need to be a fair bit longer to find those elusive 10 baggers in the UK markets. It's not to say that some of them didn't have significant runs during that period. So, for example, uh, one of the stocks I'm sure we'll talk about later, you know, you know did four bag in a year and some actually were able to get to 10 to even 15 times returns in five years. But, you know, generally the volatility meant that actually it took quite a long time for, uh, you know, this whole full set to mature into being those long-term winners. So I would say that time and patience is one of the, the, the most important attributes. Thank you. So, We've got a couple of points now, and it's really looking at the, at the types of companies and, and the characteristics that these companies share that have produced these returns. So I think we'll break it down in, into two sections. We'll look at the quantitative and, and the qualitative. If we start with the, the qualitative side of things, if we may, Ed, you know, what, what when you're looking at these companies, did these companies share in terms of their key attributes? Yes, and I think it's a good way to look at this because the the softer characteristics are really important here. And they're the kind of things you can do and and find out about through discretionary stock picking. I think one of the most compelling points is that they tended to have fairly simple and consistent operating models that they were able to grow consistently through time. And by reinvesting profits back into a scalable business model, you could really sort of generate those long-term returns. We also found that quite a few of them had, you know, various attributes which might be classified as a, a, a competitive advantage or a moat in the business. So there were quite a few that had quite good well-recognized brand names in the UK. And we also found that quite a few of them had acquisitive uh, business models. So some of them actually were set up to be buy and build operators to acquire small businesses and roll them into their own uh, business line. And, you know, we generally found that that they would choose bolt-on acquisitions rather than transformative acquisitions. And they'd always do them in an earnings enhancing way. And so the other thing that I found was that the management teams were 50% of these companies had founders as CEO or executive chairman, uh, which is a very, very high level uh, compared with the average and typical sort of CEO in, in, in the, the broader listed market pool. I think something like only 7% of businesses on the stock market actually have founders leading them. So that was quite an interesting point there that you know, founder-led businesses were, 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 were quite sort of dominant in that pool. And the other thing was that the other CEOs, we found four of the five other CEOs had very significant tenure in those businesses. So they'd already had you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the business before actually going into this significant multi-bagging period. So I think those are some of the key themes that really run across qualitatively across those businesses. And you know, I, I think I would very much stress that simple, scalable business model, but also the sales growth runway that these companies were able to expand into broad markets. Um, and that, that was a very, very key theme. Indeed. I mean, that's certainly one of the things that I always look for in in, in smaller growth companies in the, in the smaller mid-cap area is that those businesses that are still being led by that by the founder, you know, that, that does 
typically hold a, a lot of weight. So very good points there. So let's now move on, if we may, Ed, to the quantitative side of things. And, and this is where you could maybe bring in some of the, the, the metrics and tools that Stockopedia have developed in terms of your stock ranks and other metrics that you have and how they fit in with more, um, dare I say, commonly known uh, metrics and ratios such as uh, you know, P ratios, EV, EBITDA, um, whatever it yeah. may be. You know, what, what were the key takeaways? You know, what were the most important ones? Where, where were the strengths and how did that play out okay. then in the system that Stockopedia has developed? Yes, of course. I, I think... So it was quite telling, first of all, that these were small, small companies. They were all between a 50 million and 358 million market cap at the start of the journey. And just to kind of give you a, a, a color on some of the financial metrics, it was rather surprising. So all of them were profitable from the start. And in fact, all 10 were dividend payers. And that really surprised me. Uh, because you don't normally expect those kind of stellar stock market performers to necessarily start from being dividend payers. You might expect them to be, you know, younger companies that don't pay dividends, but they all pay dividends. They all were growing. They had that sales growth runway, especially in terms of uh, sales and obviously earnings. But they really benefited from operating leverage, which is operating margins really expanding through time as the sales grew. So, you know, relatively benefiting from you know more of a uh, you know not too much variable cost as the sales grew which meant the margins could really expand and that really uh, you know made a huge kicker in terms of earnings growth growing more quickly than sales growth we also found that they didn't have too much debt so they were all on a sort of net gearing ratio of sort of 30 percent or less or they had net cash uh, so because many of these sorts of businesses spit off quite a lot of cash flow and that cash flow can be reinvested back in the business. So these were all really interesting facets of, of these businesses. But also we found that they began on quite moderate valuations. So on a forecast P.E. ratio, they were all on a P.E. ratio of less than 16. So and also they tended to beat the market. So they were tending to beat the averages so beat the FTSE all share but also benefiting from the brokers upgrading their numbers through time and I, I, if I was just going to summarize this it's very much in our our lens we have our analysis lens at Stockopedia using our stock ranks which is that they were quality companies that were moderately valued that had good momentum and these really these return drivers of quality value and momentum are very uber present in markets all over the world and they are the key drivers of stock returns and which is what we based our stock ranks on so we rank for quality for value and momentum and we've generally found that higher ranked shares on this scale have tended to outperform the market and we find that 90 plus ranked shares over the same decade returned about 11 percent annualized on average but these multi-baggers actually returned 27 percent annualized on average which if you compound over 10 years leaded to about a thousand and seven percent return for those shares over that 10-year period but I, I think that's sort of the theme and you know we've got more detail on those financial ratios in, in particular in some of the downloads but that that was generally the case so these weren't speculative companies they were they had those characteristics that you would expect with profitable steady businesses and they weren't really on premium valuations and i think that was really important in, indeed and it's an interesting point that you make there that they weren't speculative companies and it brings me to my next point 
about the the drawdowns in in these companies in terms of the the share price that they actually experience on this journey because you know if you're looking for for five or ten times return on on a company and you're looking at risk to reward ratios one would expect a level of volatility within those companies if you're looking for five to ten times i mean what what did that actually look like what were the typical drawdowns we have any stats on those of those companies from where from when they started and when you started taking the data you know maybe towards the downside before they they actually took off absolutely so much as you'd expect, small caps have a tendency to be more volatile than large caps, and especially when they are on a growth trajectory and the market is trying to figure out how to properly value these companies. So I, I actually did look at this and I don't actually have the exact data in front of me, so I'm going to try and do this from memory. But I looked at the the average drawdown across the 10 before the pandemic and then including the pandemic. And from memory, the average drawdown in the share price through that period before the pandemic was 43%. And some, you know, only drew down up about 20% or so. Some drew down more like 60 or 70% at some point in that journey. And of course, they were generally rising share prices. So they did have these corrections and blips along the way. So there were these opportunities to buy, and uh, but also to, to potentially frighten you if you were holding them. And But then actually in the pandemic, on average, the whole set dropped 50% or more in that crash that happened. And in fact, if you included the pandemic crash in there, I think it made the average drawdown more than 60%. So they, you know, these, these stocks were volatile, but you know, as they all on average, sort of 10 bag, you, 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 you actually saw these companies going from very small market caps. Uh, I think they began on a median market cap of 160 million and ended up on a median market cap of about 1.6 billion. And, but then after the pandemic, they, they shot up and actually a portfolio that we've tracked from the start of the study to the end actually more than tripled from the low after the pandemic bottom of the crash. So, you know, it's it's quite extraordinary when you look at these sort of numbers. But yes, volatility and drawdowns are a, a an important theme in buying growth companies and, and trying to hold on to them while they go through these market cycles. Yeah, some, some fascinating figures there. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move on and we're going to look at the sectors and then we're going to look at the, the, the actual companies, the selection of the companies that, that have been included in this report so we'll start with the sectors ed and and you know when you're looking at the entire market of course that there's a diverse range of, of sectors for investors to choose from but when you were looking at these companies that have multi-bagged over the period were there any particular sectors that were stand out where there were a few companies uh, constituents that actually did produce these returns and then you know, I'd like to get your view on you know what's happened in the past and, and those sectors that have shown those signs of strength and, and get your view on whether you think those same sectors maybe have the potential to, to produce those returns going forward. Absolutely. The I was surprised by this, I have to admit, because I found that uh, half of them, half of the top 10 were in consumer-facing business is actually more in the consumer cyclicals part of the market. So these were brands and you know media businesses and so on, which were really kind of exposed to the consumer. And then we also found a very strong weighting towards industrials, 
which was actually again surprising so you know in kind of engineering and these sorts of areas so I, and actually there were none in the top 10 in the uk in technology and 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 there was only one in the healthcare sector so as much as everyone loves looking at biotech stocks and things like this there were none in that part of the market which was quite surprising the one in the healthcare sector was cvs group which is in the kind of veterinary services part of the of the market so i think you know there's a sort of another myth you've got to you know look in certain very dynamic disruptive industries to find multi-baggers but again we found that these were not that wasn't the case with these multi-baggers they were much more in kind of more sleepy parts of the market so anyway that i think you know the cons- the great benefit of the consumer sectors is that there is a big runway there that you know if a company does do well they can grow their sales consistently through time and into quite large target markets and then in other areas where you find that there might be less investor interest like in industrials and so on you often find that companies can you know actually you know whether through acquisition or through you know improvements in their margins and so on can actually go a long way because those are actually can be global markets too so that was quite surprising i mean i do think that looking to the future we will find plenty future multi-baggers in those sorts of sectors. But, you know, we also should be cognizant of the fact that many sectors are very out of favor at the moment. You know, the, the ESG trend and fund flows means that many of the, uh, you know, energy and mining sectors are very, very kind of beaten down and have been for, for the last 10 years. And that there may well be, you know, plenty returns in those sorts of sectors should that actually change. But also in terms of technology, if you were to look abroad and look to the US and so on, obviously there's been many amazing multi-baggers in America in the technology sector. And I think our tech sector has become quite diminished in the UK listed space. So I, I certainly wouldn't discount it. So you really can look everywhere for these sorts of businesses. Uh, but we did find those were the common themes. Fantastic. Thank you. So we're going to move on now. and We're going to discuss two companies, two of the 10 companies that you've highlighted in the report. Of course, the report is available to download in the notes of this podcast. But the two that we've picked out, Ed, are Games Workshop and, and Judges Scientific. So if we start with Games Workshop, it, it would be good to, to get your view on their story and what were the key drivers of their return? Uh, absolutely, I will. And actually, if I can just pre-frame this with, I guess, what I've called the multi-bagger equation, because I think there are three key levers that these both these stocks, and in fact, all the stocks actually really benefited from, which is that, that these key levers were one, the sales growth runway, secondly, operating leverage, so the margin expansion, and then also the PE multiple expansion. Because if you multiplied each of those by two, two by two by two, you'd actually lead to an eight bagger. And both of these stocks actually did even even more than that. So I'll just kind of explain them in a a little bit of that light. So firstly, Games Workshop. Yes, this is an extraordinary business. It's obviously catering to its own niche, to its own craft hobbyists in that space who are, you know, like painting figurines. And actually the, the company was founded way, way back. And, you know, I'm a little bit older now I'm in my 40s. And when I was a kid, I read the Fighting Fantasy series. I don't know if you remember the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, but it was a kind of a choose your own adventure. And it was Ian Livingston who wrote these books and founded Games Workshop 
And then they actually sort of initially marketed Dungeons and Dragons in the UK and things like that. And then they actually have created all their own brands, Tabletop Warring, Warhammer and more. And this business has really flown as a, one of the great stock market winners in the last 10 years. And that what they've actually done is they figured out that they could sort of do their retail outlets, not only in you know, uh, shopping centers, they kind of pulled them out of there and they, they run these one man retail outfits that can have choose their own opening hours and so on and so forth. And they also sell online and through trade and also have all this IP that they that they can then sell off to software and and, and film and so on. And the, the company's done extraordinarily well. And so it really did benefit from that real sales growth drive, controlling its margins, so that operating leverage as that sales growth came in. They've also internationally expanded. And that that the valuation, the P multiple significantly hiked up through that period. So, you know, this is a, a, a great case study. It multi-bagged 14 times through that period and is now, you know, a multi-billion pound market cap share. So that was a very, very interesting one that really benefited from those three drivers that I talked about. Yes, indeed. And I note that Games Workshop is actually not too far off becoming a FTSE 100 company. Um, mm. It's, I think it needs about 10 or 20%. But of course, it's dependent on the other companies, but that's just a gauge of how well that company's done. So the second one, Judges Scientific. Now, you did mention, Ed, that a lot of the businesses had grown through acquisitions and acquisitions are at the centre of what Judges Scientific have done. So it would be good to get a bit of colour on, on how they've got to where they are. Yeah, so Judges Scientific, um, it, it's, yes, an acquisitive buy and build business that tries to buy very sort of small niche scientific instrument businesses of which there may not be many other buyers. And they've actually executed on this buy and build model probably better than anybody in the market. And it's quite an extraordinary track record that they've done. And so I, I, I don't know exactly how many acquisitions they made, but it's got to be 20 odd or so. And what they'll do is the, the, the company is now on a premium valuation on the market, but what they do is they will buy these smaller businesses and they'll tend to you know, buy them when they, let's take an example they might buy something that's doing a, a few million in sales and, and buy it on a perhaps a three and a half, four and a half times, uh, you know, EBITDA multiple. And and then that becomes a very earnings enhancing acquisition for the group as a whole, and uh, which then gets valued on more like I think the PE ratio at the moment is more like 24 times or so. So it, it's quite a been very, very good at acquiring at a fair and, and, and really decent price. Uh, from the kind of founders of these businesses and then rolling them all up. And so it's nine bagged over that period. And it's a very, you know, got very high quality metrics. And, but again, it's benefited from the P multiple expansion, margin expansion, and so on and so forth. So yeah, quite a, quite an interesting stop. But the next point here, obviously we were discussing these companies here. And there's an element of hindsight looking back at these companies that have done very well. Um, but I want to look now at you know, investors that are listening to this that, that are thinking about how do they go about identifying potential multi-baggers going forward. And of course, we've outlined the, the key metrics and, and the stock ranks, for example, that have actually driven these companies higher. But it'd be good to get your view on what you think the main challenges are for investors that are going out and looking for these companies with the potential for five or 10 times returns going forward. And then also, you know, the challenges of sticking with these, because of course there's, there's that temptation, isn't there? If you see a stock that, 
in your portfolio has gone up two times or even three times to, to bank the profit. So what would you say to those investors there about, first of all, identifying them and then sticking with these companies? It, it, absolutely. The, it is a challenge. And, you know, you can take the Warren Buffett approach of starting at the A's and going through shares one by one by one until you find something that fits the profile. But one of the benefits these days is, is being able to filter the market using stock screening. And we're very strong on that at Stockopedia. And actually, as part of this multi-baggers research, we've done a, a few masterclasses when one of them is very focused on stock screening. And actually, I, I can sort of answer this question a little bit by going back to an FT piece that David Stevenson wrote back in, I think it was 2013, about a company that was then known as Dark Group. And the piece that he wrote uh, about our service was, called, was titled Stock Screening Really, Really Matters, or Why Stock Screening Really, Really Matters. And he it was really to, to net the ones that got away. And he was talking about dark group. It was one that he said it was flagging on all, flashing on all these kind of quantitative metrics, but he didn't buy it. And then, oh no, it's, it's doubled and now it's got away. Well, that company, dark group actually turned into changing its name to being called jet two. And that's been one of the big, that is one of the top 10 multi-baggers in our set. And one of the challenges is actually, even when you find these shares and, and everything rings true on the quantitative metrics and you find it on a you know, customized stock screen to try and filter for the attributes that really matter, often they can be rising in share price. And many people will just run a mile when they see a share price has already gone up 10, 20, 30, 50, 100%. But actually buying shares with strength is one of the kind of key things that I think successful investors need to learn to do because you, know, you can't find a multi-bagger unless it's probably already gone a fair bit on its run already. And um, I'm not espousing you know, buying shares on premium uh, valuations, but what I am saying is that if you can find things on moderate valuations that have already started gaining the attention of investors, that's a really good thing. That really is the power of momentum. So yes, I think you've got to, you know, that psychological bias of not buying shares that have, have already started their rise, I think is one to really overcome. But I think also finding them using, you know, screening tools is actually a very powerful thing too. And obviously doing some of the work on the qualitative aspects, that really, really benefits because, you know, you've got to have the only way you'll hold through those market cycle and volatility is if you actually do understand the story on a share very, very well too. So it is that kind of you know overlay of the quantitative and qualitative characteristics that really, I think, can give you confidence when the share price does ha actually have some volatility. So yeah, I, I, I've, I hope that answers the question. It does. And I think, I think one of the key takeaways there is momentum and, and don't be afraid to, to buy a stock if it's already done well. You know, there, there is... Uh, a bit of a bias to trying to pick stocks after they've they've fallen, but they've obviously fallen for for a reason. So you know that that bias can and that psychological factor can hold people back. So I think that's a very interesting point that you, that you make exactly. There. And and one thing I would say is as as private investors, we are best placed to capitalise on the power of momentum because institutional investors often can't uh, because they can't really deal in size without shifting the market very very strongly. And obviously, momentum in a share price is often an indicator that institutions are starting to acquire shares. So you can, in a way, ride on the coattails of the larger investors when that sort of accumulation is coming into the market. It really is one of the kind of advantages of being a private investor. Indeed, that's, that's, that's also a very good point. So finally, Ed, I'd like to get your view on the, you know, really the current environment for, for UK stocks, particularly in the small and, and mid-cap area. And and a potential risk to UK companies that have the potential to multi-bag over the next five to 10 years. But looking at what's happening at the moment, I mean, just over the last week, I think there's probably three or four different companies, really high quality 
UK-based, UK-listed companies that have received takeover approaches from U- US private equity or um, competitors, you know, seeking that that valuation that, that's been built into UK uh, stocks at the moment. How much of a risk do you think it is that that trend continues and curtails the opportunity for private investors to get into really high quality growth companies at, at this point and not be able to see that story out because you you, you have these uh, US private equity groups, uh, you know, the obviously companies that are operating within the sector that, that see it as a uh, potential takeover opportunity, really, uh, you know, taking those quality companies out before yeah. they actually do provide those strong returns. Well, it, it, it obviously, when you're investing in smaller companies, takeovers are an issue. Uh, but obviously, when that does happen, you will be likely to benefit from a premium. You know, we've, we've seen in recent times, Hotel Chocolat being bought out, I think, by Mars Group. Or a subsidiary of Mars for a 160% premium. Now, of course, many of these shares being bought out are already on depressed valuations because we've had a two-year bear market in small caps. So many long-term holders won't necessarily find the premiums as, as beneficial. Uh, so, you know, that that is an issue. But I think what you can always do is recycle your capital into the next new opportunity. And one can, while it might be frustrating that you think a, a company that's been bought out may have had a potentially great runway to become that multi-bagger that you're looking for. Uh, what you can do is recycle the capital into new opportunities. And, you know, the market is always rich with opportunities. Uh, I know it's not been a, a great period in the last couple of years, and we're certainly seeing more delistings. We're seeing more takeovers. The number of shares in the market has sort of fallen a bit. And that is quite frustrating as it reduces the pool. And we're not seeing the inflow of enough IPOs, certainly not in this market environment, because the cost of equity, the cost of capital is really high at the moment. But these things are always cyclical and they turn around and, you know, new new businesses will come on and float and they will, you know, reseed the, the markets for the future. So I think you have to kind of think about compounding your capital, compounding your portfolio as a whole, uh, rather than necessarily feeling, you know, too upset that one or two get bought out. So I, I think that is one of the one of the things. I mean, I would say that the market at the moment, you know, I've been investing for a long time, uh, best part of 30 years now, and I, I haven't seen a market in the UK sort of be as reasonably valued in a very, very long time, and certainly not in the history of our Stockopedia service over the last you know, decade plus. And, and I think that's quite promising for identifying potential future multi-baggers because you know all those stocks that are in the top 10 they all started on moderate valuations and when the market is on a moderate valuation and you know many people think the uk is on an anomalously low valuation because we've had brexit we've had the pandemic we've had uh, the international community is sort of withdrawn a bit from the uk but also our own pension funds have kind of drop their weighting towards UK equities massively. Now, the tide will turn on these things because this is a really great country for, for doing business. You've got great property light, rights, legal rights, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a, a good place to do business. So I think, you know, you, you shouldn't worry too much about those uh, acquisitions and, and really just get stuck in and finding the, the, the next great opportunity. There's a lot of them out there. So, Ed, when we're looking forward to 2024 and you've got your private investors hat on, of course, we've mentioned 
the very good valuations that we see in UK equities at this point in time, what excites you the most about particular catalysts to really get UK markets going forward over the next 12 months? Yes. So there are obviously some. I mean, interest rates and inflation have been in the headlines recently. And I think, you know, inflation looks to have peaked after the post-pandemic period and many people are calling for interest rates to now be cut so it'll be interesting to see and watch that interest rate cycle and there is a, a wall of money sitting in gilts and so on and so forth and if you read some of the big brokers and platforms they've been seeing these huge inflows into those sorts of products and i think when people start looking at as the yields start coming down and so forth they might start having more of a risk appetite. So that's one thing. I, I also like to look at the market cycle as a whole. And, you know, obviously when you've had two years of falling markets, which certainly has been the case for everything except the, the mega caps in the UK, you know, amongst small caps, there's been a two-year bear market and two years of, you know, of negative returns. And generally, if you look back historically, after there have been these sequential down years, you tend to see that the next few years are often quite promising in terms of returns. And right now, at the moment, I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the levels of, for example, aim against its moving average. And I like to look at the 120-day moving average because when it's above that, you often see that the market starts tending to trend and trends up and down <laughs> depending on where it is above or below the moving average. And it's very, very cyclical. So I monitor that to sort of monitor animal spirits in the market. And I think there are some quite promising signs. So it may well be that the bottom's in. I don't like predicting these things. I like to see the market actually leading on the action side to actually understand where it's heading. But I think there are some promising signs in the market that you know the future may be better than the last couple of years and certainly when things are starting on lower valuations that's a uh, that's a good foundation for more promising returns in future i think also just some of my more anecdotal conversations i had lunch with a fund manager uh, in the last couple of weeks and you know he was saying that they're starting this is a small cap fund manager that runs a well-known fund and they're just you know signing a significant ticket sizes from very large family offices in the US. So a lot of family offices around the world are now starting to really look at the UK. And, you know, we may see sort of inflows from other areas. So, you know, low valuations, low prices, people do actually find them attractive. And it's, uh, you know, while a lot of the major fund outflows have been going on, there are always buyers. So I think it's actually quite promising. And I think certainly from the, you know, the aspect of multi-bagging if you are on lower valuations that's really one of the key foundations so I, I think it's actually looking i'm actually more bullish than i've been in a very long time and i tend to be bearish so there we go <laughs> indeed i would i would share those sentiments as, as well ed very good companies out there very good valuations and as you mentioned i think one of those catalysts is definitely going to be the interest rates as soon as we see a bit of certainty around that that's going to probably be something that gets this market going. So just as a note to listeners, we have mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, but the multi-bagger report by Stockopedia is available to download in the notes to this podcast. So do check that out. Some of the metrics that Ed have discussed is in there, and they really do break down the companies that we've been discussing today in some detail. So Ed, thank you very much for being with us today. That's great. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I and thank you very much to everyone for listening and wishing you a very prosperous new year. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you in association with Stockopedia. Stockopedia is an award-winning stock analysis tool for private investors. Make better investment decisions with institutional quality data.